Hello and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Mike Kraslow, head of U.S. Venture Capital at Murray. Mike, it's great to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, so can you walk us through your background and and how you, uh, you know, kind of discovered crypto? You come closer to the mic, too. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, started my career in the public markets at BlackRock and probably the most unsexy industry you can think of for a trading perspective, ETFs. Yep. Um, kind of learned from that seat uh, about kind of two things, about one about myself, one about the market. One is kind of asset allocation, which I think is important in anyone's portfolio, although many people on this pod, listen to this podcast, maybe YOLO all into crypto. Uh, you know, um, the other thing I learned is I'm not a quant and public markets were really not for me. So I ended up transitioning over to private equity, focusing on financial services. Uh, spent a little bit of time in business school after that, tried to run at being an entrepreneur like yourself, although unfortunately I didn't have the stomach that you have to kind of make something from start to finish and realized I'm much better at kind of hopping from project to project and ending up uh, venture finding the right fit where I can work with our portfolio companies uh, to help them through like their toughest problems without having to spend all my time solving one problem. After business school, I ended up at Amex on their venture team and was fortunate enough in the very beginning of the pandemic to come across Falcon X. And that yeah, I give them a lot of credit because crypto was always something that I wanted to spend time on, but didn't have the time to. And one of the great parts of my job is I get to dig very deeply into new technologies and new businesses and understand things from the ground up. And that really got me really bullish on the, on the, on the sector for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, in the basic laws of supply and demand, I saw the demand that was coming from the institutional side, and I realized that the, the infrastructure wasn't there to allow that to happen. So it's just from a basic supply and demand perspective, um, you know, I, I saw what was coming uh, in the future. And then the second piece was really, uh, after doing some research, I realized that while there's still probably some of the conversations we're having today around security of, you know, digital assets, uh, I realized that the higher the value of underlying digital asset, the actually more secure it became because of the way that things were structured. So it gave me confidence to kind of dig deeper and kind of go all in from there. Um, after Amex ended up Murray and my second week on the job, ended up uh, following the Buffett rule of advice, invest in what you know, and invest in Falcon X again, and kind of turn the whole organization onto crypto. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, Murray broadly? So, you know, I think... Um, it, it's a relatively well-known firm, but I think it is a much bigger firm than I think a lot of people give it credit for. So kind of talk about Murray, kind of the broad global mandate uh, of what the firm does and how, you know, wh what does your role specifically mean in context of the entire firm? Of course. So <clears throat> Murray is a very large institutional asset manager at this point, sitting with roughly 700 billion AOM. Now, I may be off a little bit considering the market uh, turmoil, but uh, overall, extremely large um, we have a bunch of different strategies. Most of that is in the public markets, a large you know, private market book as well. Uh, own a lot of lot, uh, ETF businesses, uh, a company called Global X, which is one of the most prominent 
um, ETF issuers out there, as well as, uh, you know, real estate portfolio, um, insurance business brokerage, you name it. Of that, roughly four and a half billion has been invested into venture and growth. You call later stage venture growth at Murray. And the venture team is split up into three regions, one team in Asia, another one in India, and then I lead our team here in the US. And I basically, we basically cover uh, all regions outside of India and Asia. And so where is the majority? So you mentioned 700 billion in, in AUM. What is the majority of AUM in the ETF business? And where are the largest investors? Like I know Murray is, is based in Korea. Is it, is it primarily like Korean pensions and endowments and stuff that are, that are, that are in uh, Murray or is it, is it a pretty broad mix of, uh, so, so we have a very broad LP pool. I say one of the interesting things about Murray is that we are a truly global firm. They, we have 16 offices. We have offices in 16 different countries across the globe and a lot and very tight relationships where we have boots on the ground. So one of the true differentiators between Murray and many other investors is that we are a truly global platform. I can get to it a little bit later about what we look for, but one of the things we do look for are businesses that are either currently or looking to be in multiple markets. Um, those 16 different regions that we're in, our countries that we're in, really give us a you know, a competitive advantage as far as helping companies enter new markets. It's one of the things that's from an institutional standpoint that I think that we can really help companies with um, going forward. And so you mentioned having three separate um uh, you know, v- venture bases that you're kind of investing out of. Do you guys ever come together and do a deal together? Like, let's say, you know, you want to lead a series C and it's a $200 million check. You guys can only write a hundred out of the U S will you ever syndicate that out to, to the rest of Murray or. So we tend to operate together. So okay. it's a lot of sharing of deal flow and around coverage. Is it the same capital pool though, or is it separate? So we do have separate capital pools, but we tend to operate as one. So from a uh, portfolio company perspective, it should be no different. You know, from our perspective, I think the way that's structured makes it pretty unique in that economically it can make sense to write, you know, a seven-figure check or a nine-figure check, which is great because you hear of a bunch of other large funds where I have a minimum of $25 million, I have a minimum of ownership percentage. We don't really focus mm-hmm. on that. We instead focus on backing the best entrepreneurs, the best categories. And so what are you... When you're investing in businesses, so it sounds like you're pretty stage agnostic as well. Is that all out of the same vehicle? So you're investing out of one vehicle into C, Series A, Series B type deals uh, is my first question. And my, my second question is, what are the types of things that you're looking for? In, not, not in terms of the types of assets, we'll get into that in a second, but more like, do you look for board seats? Do you look for a certain amount of control or are you very flexible in that regard? So we're extremely flexible. I wouldn't necessarily, I don't think it makes sense to think about it from a vehicle perspective. Instead, it makes to think of your point of contact. So if you're based in Asia, one of my colleagues in Asia would most likely be your point of contact. In India, one of my colleagues in India would most likely be your point of contact. Outside of that, me or someone directly on my team would most likely be your point of contact. And then as far as, you know, writing the check goes, uh, like anything else, it's based on conviction, right? So the higher conviction we have, the bigger the check that we can write. Also, it's obviously stage dependent, right? It doesn't make sense to write a $100 million check into a seed round, although we've seen some of those uh, in, in, in the last year and a half. Only but, crypto. Yeah, only in crypto. <laughs> uh, AI, maybe two. Um, but you know, when we're looking for companies, we look for two things. One, a category leader, however we can define that category. And two is that international piece that we mentioned, because again, where we can add the most value from an institutional standpoint is really helping these companies enter new markets. And so how do you actually go about that support for Portco? So, I mean, curious as to what support you, you know, and actually I think basically uh, to take a step back, 
How important do you, like how value add do you think your investor should be? Like, do you think obviously a lot of, um, a lot of VCs say, Hey, you can use our, your, our hiring network, or you can use this service or that service, or we have, you know, a group of experts that can help you with go to market strategy or this or that. What role do you think a VC plays in the success of a company? And does it depend on the stage? And how do you actually go about supporting your portfolio companies? How does it actually physically so, work? So there's a couple of things in that question. I'll unpack the support first. And I think it really depends on your investment strategy. So stage and how you think that you're adding value to your companies are really important. Where we like to add value are obviously our personal networks, right? So you get me or whoever else you're working with directly in all of our networks. Secondly, you get the Murray brand, right? Where the, especially in certain parts of the world, like it really means something to have Murray. Many people on listening to this may be on the Western world where they haven't heard of Murray that much and it's, it's not the same. But if you're going to um, Asia and Murray Invest, it really, um, it, it's a brand builder from that perspective. But then lastly, you know, there's certain insights that you can get from A, looking at a broad swath of companies and B, operating in multiple different markets. And it's really kind of stitching those things together. That is my job. It's not my job to tell someone how to run their business or tell someone how to hire, how to fire, right? But you can start to see some things in a way that founders can't because you're so laser focused on building your product, you know, getting your customers, shipping out what you, what you need to on, on your list that you may not see some of the broader things that are happening in the market. Like one example I can give you is, you know, um, obviously, you know, this is a crypto focused podcast and I've spent a lot of time in the space, but it's not the only thing that we do. And after the Luna collapse, it's kind of when say crypto went there started. Um, but there started to be some kind of shakiness in the overall economic landscape prior to that, that we saw because we were looking at companies that weren't just crypto companies. So being able to give a little bit more of a heads up to portfolio companies, you know, is something that, you know, value add from looking at not just, you know, one sector. And so can you, um, well, I guess one question before we even get into that is, um, what do you guys think of in terms of the secondary market right now, actually, you know, with, you know, right now there are a lot of venture firms that are more distressed that are looking for liquidity in particular, um, you know, venture bets that they've made. Do you guys look or can you, within your mandate, invest in secondaries and companies? How excited are you about that opportunity? And how do you view kind of distressed opportunities? Uh, is that something that you guys are more excited about? Or are you more looking at at, at, at high growth uh, companies? So our strategy is tended to gear towards more of the high growth companies. Yep. Now, we wouldn't be doing our job if we limited what we could and could not invest into only primary versus secondary. However, at the stage that we typically invest at, it gives way more comfort to have primary shares than secondary shares, uh, considering that, you know. It's also so probably the information that you're getting, that you need to, like, like if you're, because you guys do series D and E, right? So you probably need to have quite a bit of financial information to build conviction in that decision. And I, I presume with secondaries, you probably would have naturally less. So less we would go earlier than that. I think in some cases we would get that information from the companies as well. Yep. But in today's environment, excuse me, we, um, I think we'd really question why someone's taking money off the table in this environment versus others. And we, well, I mean, we, what we, if we, it's like secondaries to, of another VC fund that's having liquidity issues, as an example, or like a prop trading firm or something? Listen, it's it, again, everything's on the table, right? Right. But I think right now the bid ask spread between secondary sellers and buyers is still pretty large, even for top names. Um, so it's something you have to consider, right? Everything has the right price. 
right? I wouldn't be doing my job if I just said no yeah. uh, off, right, the, right. off the top. Right. Uh, that being said, the way that we like to work with companies and the involvement we like to have uh, with them, we prefer to have it be primary. We prefer to have it go through uh, the investor, uh, through, 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 sorry, the um, operator and send the investor. Yep. That being said, right, there are some companies that we've been tracking for a long period of time that the right price would be great. And so can you talk us through kind of the Murray, um venture strategy within the U.S. broadly? Um, are you looking for what are the different sectors that you're uh, investing in? It sounds like you're relatively sector agnostic, but are there uh, certain areas of focus for you and, and what what sectors and can be non-crypto are you most excited about? Yeah, so I think this is another point that's really worth mentioning. You know, even though we are um, sector agnostic, I think we're not doing our job and we're not able to pick the right companies and not being able to help the companies appropriately. If we don't understand the sector well enough. So obviously we went very deep into Web3 and crypto and made uh, several investments there. But also some areas we're looking at now are around climate tech, um, AI, you know, and sustainability are, are probably some other ma major pillars that we're looking at right now. What are what sector have you seen be least impacted by kind of this global, um, you know, I, I mean, like, you know, macro conditions, right? Is there like a is there a sector right now, maybe it's climate tech or something else that's actually really hot that's um, trading at kind of crazy multiples or have we seen kind of a compression across the board? So you're always going to see crazy multiples for companies that are able to aggregate the right amount of hype around them. I say right now, obviously, with all the stuff happening around generative AI, that's one where you're starting to see some things right. where the you know the multiples may still be a little bit crazy. I think when you think about how to invest, you have to think about two things, your entry point and your exit point. A lot of investors are not necessarily thinking about the exit. And when you think about the multiple, right, the multiple you pay is fine no matter what it is if that company can grow well past that valuation in in the, to the next round and part of what you know the bubble you know i think it's fair to say a bubble at this point uh highlighted is that people were taking money because it was available to them and they were raising multiple times within a year without necessarily showing that much traction that change in traction and some entrepreneurs were thinking that okay well i raised at a 50x multiple last time i doubled i deserve another 50x multiple that's not exactly how it works like a 50x multiple is fine if the true trading value is 10x and you're growing more than 5x the next year. Right. All right. So it's all growth adjusted. And in our world, growth is still really important, even though there's been a shift to thinking about, you know, profitability and unit economics. You know, the, the the same thing can be said if you're just growing, you know, 20% a year and you're doing it profitably, right? That's a private equity deal, right? And you're not getting any, anywhere near the same multiples you were getting before, and maybe even valued off of EBITDA, which likely will be a lot smaller than your revenue number. So you have to think about what You're the, the first really VC are. I've ever talked about that mentions the word EBITDA. Uh, that's usually I, I, uh, I, I did spend time in private equity. So yeah, yeah, I know, I know. EBITDA is a very important word. You know, it's uh, there's there's so many there's so many companies that I look at and I'm like, you guys raised at forty or fifty x, right? Uh, and you're burning, you know, double what your revenue is every single year at a, at a late stage company. And it's like, how is that possibly? How does that possibly make sense? Like in, in what world, right? I mean, I think you know, even BlockFi before they blew up was just throwing cash into an incinerator, basically. And I think there's a lot of other firms like that. And I just I don't understand this kind of 
this growth at all costs mentality, but it sounds like that's that's obviously switching. So growth at all costs makes sense if you understand the unit economics and right. unit economics work. Right. Right. If I can put in one dollar and get two back, yeah, I want to put in as many dollars as I possibly can right. to get two back. Doesn't necessarily work for companies like uh, Getter and all those, uh, you know, del- grocery on demand businesses that were like, I think one of them, I forgot which one it was, was losing like seventy bucks an order on average to grow. So. Uh, Again, uh, don't want to put you know point figures at certain business models, but some things require scale in order to hit unit economic pro- yep. uh, you know positivity. Other opportunities also are dependent on the cost of capital, right? So one thing that's probably not talked about enough is if I can get four percent by putting my money in a three month CD, right? My not necessarily my capital specifically because I already have dedicated funds to my venture right. fund, but like any investor would have to An say, LP, yeah, it's gonna, does it make sense to put money into this, you know, very risky bet that most likely will net me, you know, 15, 20% if it works, right? Right. Like that's not exactly a great, you know, risk adjusted return in today's environment. What are you seeing in terms of lick preferences then in terms of like risk adjusted return? Are you seeing, you know, I, I presume most deals that you're doing and for anyone who doesn't know, a liquidation preference means as a as an investor, you get your money out first, right? So if you invest twenty million at a two hundred million dollar valuation, your twenty million is off the table first. What are you seeing in terms of liquidation preferences? Is, has there been any any switch? Are they like are you seeing uh, firms that kind of need the cash more coming to the table with higher like preferences, or we haven't really seen that in market yet? So I think there's two things you have to think about when applying a liquidity preference. One is like, will there be anything left at the end, right? And, you know, I think what you're seeing at the most are uh, funds supporting their existing portfolio companies that they think are real businesses. Maybe gone ahead, ahead of themselves, maybe aren't worth what they were the last round of financing. And you don't necessarily want to have a down round because that can lead to a death spiral where, you know, you start to lower the value of the company that obviously has huge negative effects on the employee base. Then they leave, then the value of the company continues to go down and, you know, no one wants that. So the liquidity preferences are... I think best used, at least right now, on companies that are in your portfolio that may need the cash to achieve milestones that you know they thought they'd be able to achieve previously in a different environment and still gives you an opportunity to not only protect your existing investment, but um, give the company the capital it needs to you know have some form of soft landing. And so let's kind of pivot to crypto. So you've made four investments uh, so far out of Marais in the digital asset space. Um, can you kind of walk us through uh, the different investments that you've made and why you were uh, particularly excited about each of the opportunities? Obviously, you've already talked about Falcon X, so maybe the other three investments. Sure. So when I first started, um, Marais had not made any investments in crypto. And it was one of the things that I was most bullish on when I started. And to give you guys context, I started in early 21. So I think the whole world was pretty bullish on crypto at that point. And the way I was thinking about it was we are a large financial institution. What can I get these other colleagues of mine that may be um, not necessarily venture investors to understand, right? And I started with businesses that I thought at one point Murray would be a customer of. So Falcon X is a digital asset prime brokerage. Clearly makes tons of sense on, you know, as we start to put out crypto products, you know, uh, down the road. The second was Figment which is, you know, uh, a validator for proof of stake. And if you believe proof of stake is going to play a huge role here, it doesn't really matter what the underlying tokens are today, but if it's going to exist in the long run, you know, it became pretty clear to me that the way that proof of stake worked, there couldn't just be one winner. There had to be a couple winners. I mentioned before category winner, category leader is very important to us. 
So it became pretty clear to me that Figment was going to be one of the two or three mm-hmm. winners in the space. And I had strong conviction that proof of stake was going to exist for a long period of time. So that was the second. Then we moved to start to spend more time around the metaverse and, and gaming. Now the metaverse had died down a little bit, but you know, we initially looked at the sandbox and then from that became aware of Animoca brands and decided that it was a much better risk adjusted investment for us to have broad exposure through Animoca. Also could be a good co-investment partner for us down the road since they do make a lot of investments themselves. And then the last one we made an investment in is Mutable X, which covered a, a couple things that were pretty important at the time. One is infrastructure around NFTs, specifically for gaming. Um, they incorporate the ZK rollup uh, technology, which was obviously very big in layer twos. And this was during kind of the Ethereum gas craze. Um, so understanding that was really important. And the idea behind Immutable was kind of twofold. One, you know, blockchain-based gaming, we had strong and still do have strong conviction on where it ends up in the long run. And Immutable was 100% focused on that compared to some of their competitors, namely Solana or Polygon, and had pretty strong belief from my time, even just operating my own business on a very small scale, that if you don't, if you focus on too many things at once, you're really focusing on nothing. So the company that focuses is most focused on the sector will win. I think I strongly believe that's playing out right now. And the second piece was what Immutable is really doing is facilitating a distributed order book. So if you think about when you go to an exchange or anywhere you go, you're focused on liquidity, right? So if I'm going to sell you this beer, right, I want to go where I can get the best value for this beer. Now, the way things have been operating for most of these early blockchain-based games is they create a digital asset. Then you have to take the eyeball off of the game or the ecosystem and send it over to OpenSea or Magic Eden, and that's where you're going to get your liquidity. What Immutable allows you to do is keep that eyeball in the ecosystem, but still pull liquidity from those other areas. So I didn't necessarily believe that an OpenSea or Magic Eden is going to be where everyone automatically goes to trade. Maybe they will trade if they're doing speculation or if they're trying to sell a broad array of assets across multiple ecosystems. But if you want to be someone who's just playing the game and you want to be able to accrue value from your asset or exchange it for something else, those those entities will eventually want to keep you in the ecosystem. So if you think like long tail, like the best way to break any type of thesis is to think, you know, in the best case or worst case scenario. So in the best case scenario, Disney's creating a Marvel game. They have NFT of Iron Man. They're not going to let you go to OpenSea in order to trade that NFT of Iron Man. They're going to want you to stay in the Disney ecosystem. So how can you do that while also pulling liquidity from these other larger ecosystems? And that is what Mutable is solving. So one of the investments that you mentioned, uh, Figment, um, staking provider, um, one of the things that I've always kind of, I wouldn't say struggled with with staking providers, but a concern I've always had is how do you hedge your risk? Right. I guess that's the problem with any sort of, I wouldn't say that they're transactional because they're different, but if you're a staking, and I'm not suggesting that Figment was a big Solana staking provider, right? But Solana is now trading at a 90 plus percent discount from its all time high, right? And so naturally, as a staking provider, you're receiving a portion of, you know, basically fees accrued or, or revenue generated from staking. And so how does it, like, to me, a staking provider is kind of like investing in ETF in a way, right? Obviously, like, or maybe an ETF issuer, but with very highly volatile tokens kind of underneath it. And so how do these businesses actually go about hedging risk? Um, because I've always been concerned that a staking provider in a down market can get absolutely destroyed in terms of the revenue that they're, that they're generating. 
So I, I think it's twofold, right? So one is, can you actually hedge the underlying token? You know, you can in some ways, right? But ultimately, your success is somewhat dependent on the ecosystem. I yep. think what's important for someone like Figment is that they're not dependent on one token. Yep. Right there, it's across ecosystem. If you believe in the technology, right, right, they build a reputation where like they're the first one you go to, right, or one of the first ones you go to, yeah, yeah. and that's really where you can hedge for like the long term. I think we'll get talking more about tokens later, but when you think about what happened in t- 2001 versus now, obviously the asset um, has depreciated a lot, right, or you know come back down to earth, however you want to describe yeah. it, and I think it's important that understand that my role as a VC is not to be a market timer. Right. Right. It's to be to think about long term trends that are here to stay. Right. So all I care for Figment is I never expected it to be a straight line right up, but I care that they're continuing to take market share. They continue to increase right. if, if crypto succeeds and if they manage their risk well in terms of having runway and things like that, you know, you have the belief that they're the best in class company. And so therefore in the long run it ends up being a winner. That's kind of how we think about it. Obviously, we can be helpful in other aspects. We can provide different tools and networks within our own portfolio to help them out and and do some of the hedging if they uh, decide to do so, or give them a heads up on things that we're seeing so they can get in front of um, you know certain scenarios. But at the end of the day, right, it's not my job to tell someone how to run their business. It's to point out risks and allow them to kind of hedge and manage. So what I'm really thinking about is, okay, are you managing your cash position properly? Are you managing you know your hiring? you know, properly? Are you allocating resources where you need to? Or do you need help getting in front of any large contracts that I have or my colleagues have relationships with? Like, it's it's pretty basic, you know, from that standpoint. And, you know, some people will say, okay, well, then VC is not really doing much. But like, again, seeing things across the spectrum and being able to give a heads up and not focus on only kind of the minutia of executing your broader vision, you know, sometimes, you know, looking at things from the 10,000 foot view versus, you know, on the ground will give insights that hopefully in the right situation are absorbed and digested properly by the operators um, to take advantage of. And so one of the other deals that you mentioned is Immutable X, which actually has a token. Um, and so obviously the three other deals you've done are equity. So presumably it's the only token deal that, that Murray has done. And so one of the questions that I've always had is like, how do you think about diligencing an equity versus a token deal, right? Like what difference is there and how do you get comfortable underwriting a token from a valuation perspective? Because obviously you underwrite, you know, you underwrite an X company, Y company, right? Like you underwrite um, Figment, presumably there's sub public comp that you can look at for some tangentially relevant business. And you go like, look, I think in maturity, this company trades at 8x EBITDA, right? And so therefore, I'm, you know, I think they're going to continue to grow at this rate. I think this is the TAM and I can underwrite it. But from a token perspective, like obviously the market is incredibly immature, right? You know, theoretically, you know, if you started in 21, right? In November 21, there were some tokens that were trading at 20x higher, <laughs> you know, um, you know, 20x higher um, market caps. I wouldn't say valuations. I think that's a generous word. Um so how do you kind of get comfortable underwriting a token? So let's be clear. I think Murray is a bit of a you know oxymoron and talking out of two sides of my mouth, but Murray is conservative for a VC, right? Yep. So we are part of a large organization. Like again, the brand matters not just here in the US, but overseas. Yep. And we actually did not underwrite any token deals. Our investment in Immutable is only on the equity 
side. So when we think about it, like it was kind of discounted working capital okay. in, in that scenario. So the token was like, okay, this is an, a, token an extra. Was, token was already issued. Right. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't, you know, something that we were really focused on for, um, Presumably, that was looped in in some capacity into whatever the deal was. We think about it as part of their balance sheet, and it's you know working capital to help them go out and acquire more games to build on their platform, right? I guess the question, in light of the FTX, you know, uh, debacle, becomes just because you have an asset on your balance sheet that you're putting at some valuation and some theoretical market cap is you know. Is a hundred million in immutable X tokens really worth a hundred million immutable? I'm not saying immutable X as, as, as specifically. I'm saying so, so I'll, as, I'll, as kind I'll of be very honest with you. So the two, I mean, all the companies have some form of token balance. Yep. Uh, that we invested in, uh, but it was heavily discounted. You know, at the time right. that we made the investment, we stayed away from the, you know, invest in a company's equity for a token war and try to cash out. Yep. You know, that was something where, you know. At the time, I wish we could move fast enough because I think it was an easy way to print money. But I think in retrospect, you know, we were right in, under, in understanding that it doesn't really make too much sense as a long-term viable option. And like I said, I'm not trying to time the market. I'm trying to make sure that I invest in sustainable business models. So a lot of this, you know, at some point, it was more profitable for you to think about a cool technology, write the line of code, ICO or issue a token, and the market will reward you more for that than for actually the historical way of doing something is you build technology, you keep it in-house, you build a business model around that technology that is your competitive advantage, and you go out and you start to earn money off of the services that you're providing. So what gave us comfort is that Immutable is building something, they're providing a service, they're earning value, and that revenue accrues, in this case, a portion of the token and a portion to the equity, and we're able to underwrite the equity. So we didn't really have to focus on the token too much other than to think about it as, kind of discounted working capital uh, that's available available to them today. But even without it, they have many years of runway to achieve their goals. So it's it's one of those situations where if it went to zero tomorrow, um, obviously wouldn't be great, but I don't think it materially changes the long-term outcome of what we would see for the business. So presumably you've you've seen a, a large number of crypto businesses. Obviously, you've invested in four, which I presume you've seen at least 40 or 50, right? Over the if not, if uh, well, not well, significantly more. That, yeah. And so what I'm curious as to, look, I don't know how many balance sheets you saw. I'm sure you saw a lot. You know, how heavy, heavy were, were most of the companies that you saw in terms of their crypto holdings on balance sheet? Like, do you think the drawdowns and tokens had a material impact on the balance sheet of, of you know, stage agnostic of, of, of a, a huge number of companies in this space? So it definitely had a large impact. I mean, there's a couple of things that I've heard that I think have larger impacts, such as where you kept your money. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's like a, a shocker or if I'm really supposed to be talking about it on the podcast, but I've heard that call it a very large company that is no longer with us was leading rounds and then forcing those companies to keep all the reserves with them. Oh, I uh, mean, everyone uh, knows that FTX was forcing people yeah, to keep yeah, their reserves. So, so, so like stuff like this that. This podcast is supposed to be candid. You're supposed yeah, to talk yeah, shit about crypto. Uh, I, don't, I don't never want to talk uh, mm-hmm. shit about anybody, um, at least unless it's to their face and they, they can, you know, refute it. But you know, I think that has a, a bigger impact. I think the bigger impact is around trust and whether or not, you know, some of these businesses should exist that's based off of trading or token volume. I think what we've seen a lot of, and it kind of uh, highlighted kind of super impressive growth in 21. And now some of the issues are the involvement of the token on the business model, right? So I think that has a bigger impact than the balance sheet because okay, balance sheets, 
can grow and decrease. You can always raise more money if your business is still viable and earning money. But if your entire revenue is based off the token and you do hit the point where you do need more capital, then not only are you facing multiple contraction, but revenue contraction, and then the value of your business is significantly lower than what you raised before to the point where if you ever were to need more capital, right, it would be a severe down round that just the headlines alone would probably kill your business. Well, I think there's also a number of businesses that like had contracts that paid them in tokens, right? And so, you know, let's say they thought they were 5 million ARR, right? But they had some sort of lock on the token as part of the deal. Maybe they're a million ARR now just because the value of the tokens have depreciated so much. So listen, that's obviously a problem, but it's a fixable problem, right? right? Long run. I think the bigger issue is if all your revenues in tokens, right? The ones that kind of struck me as, you know, red flags were companies that would pay themselves in revenue of their own tokens, where they were so dependent on the ecosystem that it became very apparent to me that if you can't figure out an intrinsic value of this particular token, you can't find uh, intrinsic value for the company, right? You know, going back to Figment, like if I believe in proof of stake, like proof of stake is going to exist and there's going to be some form of revenue that they're going to be able to gather as yep. long as this continues to be a tool that has an upward trajectory that we can believe regardless of the underlying token prices today or in, in 2021. But and I think, and I think like to your point on figment, right? Like presumably what's happening now has no significant impact on somebody's desirability to stake in that staking is non-custodial, right? So, you know, whereas if you were, um, viewing an exchange's assets under custody as some sort of revenue driver, that might be very different than looking at assets under stake because, you know, staking is non-custodial. Yeah, so I think it's, there's two things there. One is, you know, talking about custodial versus non-custodial, which like I don't necessarily have like a huge opinion on right now, but I think it's more important of who your customer is. So one of the things that we stayed away from was a lot of the consumer-facing businesses, and that was mainly because, you know, one of the things that I think probably – it's talked about a lot, but maybe not fully understand is like the role of the regulators in all this long term. And it was our strong belief from the insights that we were able to gather that, you know, if your customers are quote, big boys and girls that are institutions, like the regulators are not going to come after you. But if they are consumers and something like the FDX fiasco happens or Luna happens, like the consumer that lost all their money, right, is going to be, you know, what the hell happened? Why didn't anyone protect me from this? Because no one really wants to take responsibility for losing all their own money. And that's where the regulators are going to come in, right? Honestly, it, it correlates a lot also to kind of some of the neobanks and kind of general fintechs that are operating on the peripheral of licenses or doing some things that normally you would require pretty heavily financial licenses to operate um, that were not actually regulated at all. And, you know, obviously it's very easy to make money in a bull market where everything's going up and, you know, the concept of like a Ponzi scheme, you know, whether or not we want to talk about it or not, like it works if assets keep going up or you keep on getting more people to give you assets. But once that stops, then the cracks in the foundation uh, become gaping holes and companies go out of business. So actually speaking of um, consumer plays, I remember in 2018 vividly, and I'm not going to say who it is, speaking to a consumer fintech in crypto, which grew very large and no longer exists. Um, and I spoke to the CEO and founder of the company, and he's like, growth at all costs, and then ask regulators for forgiveness later. Um, and I was like, that doesn't seem like a great strategy. Um, they they got sued and and faced stiff fines from regulators, 
in addition to later going out of business. Um, but I think that's a, I think that's a fair and valid point. And I think, look, right now you look like a genius not being in consumer. Um, consumer's gotten I mean, consumer's I mean, gotten destroyed across the board, right? Like I don't know, I don't know if you call me a genius, right? I, I think it's also you. Well, I mean, mo- but, but sure, but like most people were had some consumer exposure, so I think broadly speaking, not being in consumer is probably a, a good decision. Uh, and I think consumer is also an area that is got so much competition, right? There's a hundred Robinhood competitors, right? Like there's a hundred competitors to, you know, SoFi invest, right? Like, you know, there, there's just a million of these different, like, you know, small to midsize, uh, you know, trading platforms, whether they be for Voyager, right? And obviously that doesn't exist anymore, but like, you know, things that, that kind of operate in that arena. So I think that makes sense. So my next question is, all right, with everything that's happened in crypto, how do you go about underwriting growth rounds in the space right now? How do you actually think about that in terms of like, has the TAM, you're investing for the long run. Do you think that TAM on crypto has significantly changed over the last few months um, in the long run? Obviously, you know, how, how like is the fund a seven year or 10 year fund? What is it? 10 year fund. 10 year fund, right? So in a 10 year fund perspective, right? Presumably you have like eight years left or nine years, whatever it is, right? Do you think the long term total addressable market for digital assets has changed? And how do you actually think about underwriting growth in terms of like multiples and public markets have compressed, you know, like what kind of difference is there now? And are you more excited about earlier stage versus later stage deals at this point? So this is a bit of a macro question, right? So let's attack the multiples first, because I think that's the- Yeah, and it doesn't need to be a crypto specific question. I think that's the easiest way to start, right? So you think about multiples, right? Um, Multiples were- priced on growth yep right and they're priced on growth because kind of what i alluded to before like interest rates were zero investors had to get cash out the door you had to search for growth and yield somewhere so it was very cheap for you to put money in today that's earning zero yield and hope for some return in the future right you didn't have to discount those cash flows with anything so the value of future cash flows were worth more so if you're thinking about how you're going to value a company now the multiple has to contract because there is a better alternative for short-term returns, therefore the cost of capital has increased. And if you can't at least show an opportunity to get that cash back quicker, then your multiple is going to be much lower than before. If you look at crypto in general, right, I think the overall large-scale TAM is still enormous, but the short-term TAM is obviously shrunken significantly, and that impacts what you can pay for business because you don't know how far out into the future their actions start to return cash in a meaningful way. So that's kind of how you have to think about it from a baseline perspective. The other thing which, you know, we talk about sometimes that I don't necessarily think is a real outcome, but something you have to be aware of, like what's the market cap of all crypto right now? Is it a bill or a, something? What, 800 billion or something like that, right? And that's mostly ETH and Bitcoin, but like still like 800, like, you know, that's something that could theoretically be taken down. Now, for someone who spends a lot of time in the space, you understand who's all the people that are building there and all the infrastructure that's already existing. So, you know, I have pretty high conviction that that's not going to happen. That being said, like at what point can someone take out any of these main protocols? Like what if someone figures out a hack for, you know, to take out Bitcoin? Like, you know, it's been pretty tested over the last, you know, 10, 12 years, right? So it's not likely, but I mean, I haven't heard exactly who. But does that, but, but does that impact multiples on a particular company or does that impact your comfort level in the percentage allocation of the fund to digital assets? I think it probably is the latter. Okay. 
And I think the long-term growth, like the way that we think about digital assets is not tied to what exists today. It's more of the digitization of existing assets and a lot of the rails and infrastructure. Is that, that, is that a newer, today. is that a newer pivot though, towards more like the, the tokenization of securities or that's kind of been broadly thought uh, process you've had? So I, I think it's probably more kind of accepted as an idea now, but that was in my underwriting case for Falcon X. Right. Right. So it was a, the first thing I did was, okay, great. You know, am I going to try to convince some, you know, C-level executives in Korea that Falcon X is going to be huge because Bitcoin and ETH are going to be huge or some other tokens are going to be huge or convinced that, you know, they have the infrastructure to handle whatever, you know, CBDCs are more prevalent or whatever, you know, other digital assets, other things are digitized, you know, including existing infrastructure. The first thing that I did when I first looked at Falcon X at Amex was I looked at the size of the market cap, which at that point was $250, 300000000000 billion, and compared that to the size of the total equity market cap globally, which is like $94 trillion or something like that, or $74 trillion. I forget the exact number. But then you start to see, like, if you believe this is a transition as an infrastructure, like blockchain as infrastructure to transition, then you don't have to worry about a token. You don't have to worry about Bitcoin or just ETH. You just have to believe that our financial infrastructure is going to transition to this newer, better form of infrastructure, which right now we're calling crypto, right? And if you believe that, then a lot of the players that exist today will have a place in the future. And so thinking about crypto specifically, you know, right now, you know, let's say the overall token market cap is 800. I don't know what the exact number is. I think you're in the ballpark. Um, you know, overall value of assets in the world are tens, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars. What do you think the opportunity for digital assets is from an allocator perspective, right? Let's not, let's not take the digitization of securities and more traditional assets, but actually crypto. Like, do you think in 10 years from now, crypto becomes a 2% allocation for the biggest pensions and endowments in the world, or does it become a 10% allocation? Like how, how big do you think this opportunity becomes? I think it depends on the intrinsic value of the underlying asset. Right. Right. So do you think any assets have an underlying intrinsic value right now within crypto? I do. Um, I think the easiest one to point to is ETH, right? There's people building on it. Uh, and if you believe, you know, kind of the ETH 2.0 structure, right? It's kind of structured like a share buyback where you can accrue value in, in, in that structure. Um, long run, though, like my belief is probably most of these are securities that operate like a security. And but is that a bad thing? Why would that be a bad thing? I don't it, know. I mean, it's it, a bad it, thing for some crypto companies, but I mean, it's a bad thing for anyone who's like, I hate regulation, right? But like, or that like issued a token and is now going to get fined by. Well, if yes, I mean, listen, there's governance tokens. There's you know, it's just, how do you value just governance, right? I mean, obviously, someone smarter than I can can go out and value these things. I mean, you look at the different types of shares in the public markets, and whether or not they actually have real governance rights, or like they're super governance rights for founders. You know, whether or not how I think governance is a good question, though, because like so many tokens that I'm friends with the founders of, they control the vote. Like just because you have governance that like it's like, OK, let me go call up my two largest investors. And I think governance is kind of a facade for trying to avoid securities regulation. Maybe. I mean, I don't think most of the tokens have any real value if that's where we're getting at. You know, most of the tokens today. Um, but I think the concept of tokenizing an asset is really powerful. And again, 
we spent most of our time focused on infrastructure providers. Right. And we think that that infrastructure is going to be around to help support as kind of there's, there's a more underwritable uh, use case for some of these tokens. And so that's an interesting point. And so what specifically about tokenization of assets? Is it the fact that it's like infinitely divisible? It's easily transmittable? Like what, like why should a particular, like let's say a realist, a REIT, why should a REIT be tokenized or a, or an equity or this or that? Like what is the actual, what, what about tokenization has you excited? Well, think about some of the basic companies that came around just in, in fintech prior to kind of this most recent crypto boom. Like you have like Acorns, which allowed people to get access to securities in fractional mm -hmm. format, you know, start to put away $5 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, and you're rounding up your credit card. Like anything that allows you not to have to spend, you know, a thousand bucks for an Amazon share or, you know, however yep. much like a Berkshire B share is and like get that exposure. Yep in a more efficient and uh, accountable fashion. Like, but Acorns did that without tokens. I understand, but don't you think that it's, you know, a better model to have it tokenized? It's more efficient, less cost-effective? Listen, could be wrong here. Like, we could find workarounds at all points. But then on top of that, you have, you know, I think FTX got something right where they were having, you know, trading 24-7 on tokenized versions of the stock portfolio. Like, why does it have to be yep. 9 to 5? Like, I mean, my job sure as hell isn't nine to five. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, I think most people want to have exposure and liquidity and not have to pay aftermarket pricing and all that. So yep. Yep. I think there's a lot of different use cases here on why things can be tokenized to increase liquidity, to increase the ability to distribute. Right. You know, think about even during the pandemic when, you know, the government was issuing, you know, checks to everyone to help them survive the pandemic. Right. Wouldn't it be easier if you just had a wallet that they can just immediately drop in, you know, USDC or some version of a CBDC tied to that and better accounting, you know, it's probably a pretty poor system for anyone who was trying to have, you know, any type of tax avoidance, but how much easier wouldn't, you know, an accountant's job be if everything was on the blockchain and you just like mm -hmm. algorithmically load everything up, right? It's, you know, there's obviously privacy concerns around there, which we have to work through. And there's some use cases for not being able to see everything, you know, sure a lot of traders don't want everyone to understand exactly their trading strategy and exposure um, as well. But as you work through some of these things, right? Well, I think that's one of the most exciting things about the blockchain. The fact that it is totally transparent, I think, is, is pretty exciting, right? And the fact that, like, like everyone talks about crypto being pseudo-anonymous, it is totally not anonymous whatsoever, right? The second you've KYC'd, you're done. Like, I think it's regulators' best friend, the fact that everything, like anything on Bitcoin or ETH or any of these other blockchains is totally trackable, right? The second you put money on Coinbase or Kraken or any of these other centralized exchanges, regulator can go out in three seconds, figure out who you are, right? It's actually, uh, it's actually rather interesting. I think it's a, it's an unintentionally good feature of digital assets, depending on how you look at you, how you look at it. So it's good in some cases, but not in others, right? Like if you're actually having a trading strategy, you don't want anyone to know your trading strategy. You also don't need to trade on chain. You can trade on an exchange. Listen, you, yeah. you can, right? But then that opens up the whole issue of counterparty risk. Which but you could also, but like if you're, if you're running a trading strategy, you can just like run it on multiple different wallets, right? Like you can, like the best mixing service, everyone talks about like 
Bitcoin and ETH mixing services. The best missing service ever is sending your money to a centralized exchange, right? You want to hide your assets, right? Somebody tags your wallet publicly, send it to Coinbase, pull it out from a different wallet address. Yes, a regulator can still track you, but no one's gonna be able to copy your trade, right? Like, you know, I think a lot of retail tries to focus on like a, hey, what is this smart money or fund doing? But in reality, the only reason that you can see what that smart money or fund is doing is because that smart money or fund wants you to see what they're doing, right? Like if Jump wanted to obscure their trades, they could obscure their trades. That's a, that's a, that's a fair point. So like, again, it solves one of the problems, right? There, there, there you go. Um, you know, again, I, like you said, there's a lot of benefits here. And I think long run, you'll start to see more of them as it gets more uh, mainstream adoption. But, you know, there's obviously some issues existing. I think the hardest, the biggest one today is around um, confidence and like where to keep, you know, your digital assets. And then also the onboarding process for most of these are pretty horrible. So to get the mass adoption that crypto really wants, you know, we need to make it look probably a lot more like Web 2 than the current Web 3 format. And so what areas of crypto are you most excited for um, from a growth or later stage perspective? So again, this is probably something that's been said more recently, although we've been thinking about for a long period of time and we're looking for kind of real world use cases. Right. Right. So in theory, like payments should be something, cross-border payments should be something that is, um, you know, a huge advantage to use crypto versus existing kind of SWIFT network or anything like that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're still looking for those opportunities. And again, we typically invest a little bit later stage once companies have di differentiated themselves, not just as, you know, finding product market fit, but differentiating themselves from existing competitors. So a lot of the stuff that's happening right now, I think is probably um, a little bit too early for us, but anyone out there that's working on this stuff, they love, love to chat. And then other, like on the UI UX aspect of it as well, you know, onboarding, um, you know, some of the KYC or, um, you know, security aspect. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff that's that's interesting over there too. And how do you go about sourcing opportunities in crypto? Is it mostly from within network? And like, what does the deal flow look like over the last six months? And you know, particularly the last month or two. Like, how much has it slowed? I mean, how do I source besides calling you? Besides for calling me, and uh, looking at all of our podcast yeah, guests. Of course. Which are great. Uh, end of the day, everything's about network, yeah. right? So it's my job to make myself as available as possible, but also let people know that I understand what's going on because the last thing you want is to have someone that is an investor that asks you questions that are like, this makes no sense because you have to understand from an investor's perspective, like they still have LPs that they have to deal with. So when something like FTX happens, like if you didn't think that I had to be on calls constantly with all my portfolio companies to understand their exposure and what's going on and what's the real risk to their business and then relay that up chain, like you're blind and that's the same for every investor right so you want to make sure that someone like me is not just asking you for information but also being able to give you insights as well and give you a heads up or help you find solutions around certain problems that you may be facing so understanding the landscape right is the key point and then using that network to get in front of the right companies and make it so someone's willing to give you an introduction and not just like oh like behind the scenes hey talk to this guy to, you know for me as a favor but actually like ignore everything he's saying and so how does the FTX collapse and ensuing contagion, which I think we're still sorting out, uh, impact how Murray broadly views digital assets? It sounds like you still have conviction uh, in the asset class, but presumably there are uh, other decision makers at Murray that have a say at the table. Um, you know, um, given that you guys are a $700 billion asset manager, um, 
you know, ha- has this materially impacted what you're hearing from uh, from Korea and from executives there or kind of across the board within the firm? So listen, I'd be lying if I said it had zero impact, but at yep. the same time, like Maria's Korean based, right? So Luna also had yep. an impact, <laughs> yep. right? Yep. And if you think about Luna is actually more damaging to crypto than FTX is because FTX was just effectively straight fraud, <laughs> right? Um, you know, as allocated by today's announcement when SPF got arrested and what he was actually, you know, kind of charged with. Uh, so listen, obviously it's my job to do diligence and try to weed out fraudulent um you know, operators and not invest in them. So I think, you know, this is maybe. The, but you the, haven't heard like a, hey, stop crypto. Kind no, of listen, we're, we're still committed to the space, yeah. but I think crypto, like anything else, it's probably a broader um, wake up call to make sure we are doing the proper diligence, make sure that we are providing the proper governance, right? It wasn't just FTX or a bunch of companies out there who were able to get large sums of capital without really even having to form a board. And without a board, there's no oversight. Without any oversight, things like this can happen, right? So are you asking the right questions? And if you ask the right questions and they give you the right answers and then it turns out they were just lying to you, like that's fraud. You know, I think people look at, you know, fraud and think, oh my God, it's more prevalent in crypto. Like it's happened throughout, you know, uh, history. And, you know, SBF basically took three of the most prominent fraudulent cases that existed and wrapped them all into one. When you think about like Lehman Madoff and Enron. Uh, but if you think about, you know, Bernie Madoff, like people were asking for audited financials. He was giving you audited financials. People didn't realize they were audited by his brother. And like, that's how he got away with it. Right. So at the end of the day, there's only so much we can do around the fraud aspect of things, but being on top of it, you know, I think having longer relationships with founders is helpful because if you ask, you know, a question, and then the numbers changed or the way that he answered the questions changed, then it'd be an insight to, okay, well, something's not kosher here. So this isn't a um, knock on crypto specifically. I think it's just venture investing in a market where kind of the power shifted a little bit back towards the investor where we have a little bit more time to dig into companies. It's not, hey, give me an answer in a week. Hey, I don't really have that much of a data room. Someone preempted me, like, are you in, are you out? You know, being disciplined um, it's always important, but now it's even more so because you maybe had a little bit more of an excuse that you ever really had an excuse if, you know, quote unquote, everyone's doing it. It's the wrong thing to say. It's not something I ever abide by, but you can kind of talk your way out of it in that scenario. In today's environment, it's very front and center that, you know, you really have to ask some of these questions, be a little more um, on top of the founder and understanding the business, understanding the risks. Uh, so hopefully, you know, people are using that time wisely and not just saying, okay, well, if I drag out the same questions I'd ask in two weeks over six weeks, that means I spent more time with the company and I did my job. No, like there's a little bit deeper level of, um, diligence that you're able to do in in this environment. And hopefully that results in better partnerships and more trust between, you know, the founder and the investor, right? Because if you don't, you take money from someone that you don't have any respect for and you don't trust, it's just, you know, a check to you, right? More likely to be defrauded or fooled. If you're talking to someone for six weeks, eight weeks, three months, five months, and then you start to get to the point where it's worth to have a, you know, a relationship with, this is what this is. It's a relationship. I give you money, right? It's not like, here's money. I'll talk to you, you know, when you exit, right? I want to be a resource. I want to have a relationship. So 
you know, it's, it's all relationship building and having more time to do that before quote unquote tying the knot with a check, I think is helpful, honestly, for both sides. And so let's go speed around the last couple of minutes we have here. Sure. So first question, we talked about Murray, but the venture fund has LPs that aren't Murray. Is that correct? So what are you hearing um, from LPs outside of Murray in terms of crypto exposure? Is there any concern um, that's been addressed to you guys? And broadly, from a fundraising perspective, um, how tight are allocators being right now? Not just in crypto, but kind of across the board. You know, how much do you think like venture, like fundraising for venture funds specifically has slowed from, you know, kind of its peak last year? So again, this is more of a macro question. Like it's obviously a flight to quality, Yep. right? But if you think about an allocator, right? Let's say I'm an allocator and I decided I want to give 20% to venture, Yep. right? If my public book is down 50%, then my 20% allocation is down 50%. Right. So obviously it makes things more difficult. And right. the same thing for crypto, right? If my crypto allocation was 5%, even if I keep the same 5%, which you may not in a risk in the current risk environment, right? That's still down... 50% even before you figure out if you want to drop your crypto allocation from 5% to 2%. Right. So when you're thinking about where the capital is coming from, these capital allocators are thinking about it from like a macro perspective. Right. And there are cycles where you want to be more risk on. There are cycles where you want to be more risk off. We are in a more risk off situation. So if your total assets are down and allocation to that riskier portion is down, it's obviously more difficult to go out and get capital. And so, you know, what do you think the recovery looks like for crypto? Um, you know, tokens specifically. Uh, do you think the ever the market ever fully recovers? Like, do you think you know, uh, you know, obviously, you know, from a venture investor perspective, right? You know, I think kind of the broad swath view is ninety percent of startups fail. Uh, do you think it's kind of the same thing for? I'm talking specifically on the token side. Probably more than ninety percent that fail, if I had a guess. Um, I think the question also, and we don't need to answer that, but it's like, what does failing as a token mean, right? Because these tokens will always exist in some capacity, right? There are tokens that exist where there's no company backing them anymore, right? So I mean, I guess yeah. failure is zero liquidity and you can't get out of your position. Right, right. Right. So uh, that, I think that's probably an easier answer. If you're thinking about where things end up, you know, you got to prove that you're providing value. Right? If the token's not providing value and there's no reason for users to hold it, if there's no buyer on the other side, for any any reason, then it's a worthless token. Like there, if you think about even during the financial crisis, there were assets that were still held on books worth millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. But if there's no buyer on the other side, even for a dollar, then that asset is actually worth zero. So it's not just a token issue; it's a um, just an asset issue. And so, what is your hottest take right now? Hottest take in uh, crypto. In crypto, I mean, my personal belief is I find it hard to believe that there's really any other layer ones besides ETH and Bitcoin that survive. Like I'm, I'm very bullish on the ETH plus layer two solution as opposed to multiple layer ones. Now, probably be proven wrong. I think you know if you looked at in 21, probably people thought maybe five to seven of them really exist long run. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been asking for maybe nine, 10 months. Like, how many layer ones do you think exist in five years and seven years? Interesting on your take on that, too. But including Bitcoin and ETH as layer ones, like, how many do you think actually exist in five years? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's too early to tell. Um, 
I think it's even too early to call. I, I think ETH and Bitcoin are clearly winners. Um, but I think that there are other layer ones that are that are building or, or layer zeros that are building interesting technology for people to build like app specific chains on and other layer ones. So I think I couldn't tell you who the winners are besides for Bitcoin and ETH, but I think it's too early to call anybody else out of the competition. But if you if you had to say, you know, confidently put your money in two assets in crypto. Obviously, it's very it's very easy to, and, to make that determination. It goes back to the flight to quality, right? right? So two things that you know will be around in the long term. But then again, do you know what those things would be valued at, right? We, but also keep in mind, like ETH didn't exist, you know, since uh, before 2015, right? Like it, it, it's only, it's not even what, a 10-year-old technology. What was the alternative to ETH at that point? Well, there was really, I mean, it was like pure coin and name coin and green coin and stuff well, like well, that. Well, that's the point I'm making, like, well, but those were those are very different assets, right? But, so there wasn't, but but like I think, you know, or or building on top of Bitcoin, right? There was a lot of conversation. There was Omni on Bitcoin and things like that. But I think that right now, ETH certainly has most of the dev talent. It has most of the energy. It has most of the projects. But there's still such incredibly small number of people actually using Ethereum in the broad scope of the world, right? Like. It is so, in, if I had to guess and I could be wrong, the number of active users on Ethereum that are not bots, if I had to guess and we have the data on this, I would assume is less than 100,000 people, right? So you're talking a fraction, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the world's population, right? And if there's another blockchain that comes out with this exciting real world use case and actual usage, like most of the things built on, on ETH are like speculative assets, right? Or, or things like that or NFTs or whatever, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count anything else out yet. I think it's a little bit too early. I think that's fair, but then you have to look at me and say, where are the developers, right? Because how are you going to get all these developers to build on this new platform? So I believe, well, I mean, for example, Cosmos has seen a massive in, in, influx and increase in the number of developers. I mean, I think there's, there's certainly other chains that have, I think the question becomes not is the developers within the ecosystem, not just the chain specifically, but developers also move, right? Developers are going to look for the best products and the best opportunities, right? You know, um, I, I, you know, but, you know, Facebook was the coolest place to work at 10 years ago. Is it still the coolest place to work at now? Um, you know, so, no, so no, I agree with you. Everyone has their day and it's probably too much to say there'll never be another. I think it's, I think I, your point is understood though. Your point is taken. Right. And I think it's, I think it's a fair one. And so my final question, um, and you don't have to answer this. This is a, uh, a very important question is the Michigan TCU score. I'm not sure if this episode will come out before or after the game. Uh, but what do you think the score is? 38-24 Michigan. All right. You heard it here first. And so final question is, where can the listeners find uh, uh, find you online and learn more about Murray? So Murray um, Asset, you know, the U.S. Venture Team has their own website. Just Google Murray Asset Ventures uh, at your own discretion. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm not really a big Twitter user, although um, trying to be better. Uh, that's that. Awesome. Well, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on. I learned a ton. I have a lot more questions, but uh, you know, we already went an hour. So th thanks so much. And I uh, would love to have you on again. Oh, thanks for having me.